hello again, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Geek Out Loud. I'm Steve, your host, Big Honkin' Steve, if you will, and glad to have you along with us, and this is your safe place to geek out. Uh, before we jump into things real heavy, let me just say, we say it all the time, that this is the official podcast of geekoutonline.com, and I know that you think, well, there's really not much going on over at geekoutonline.com. Here's the thing, that's not going to be your place to find news or the information about upcoming events. I'm not... I'm not an insider. I don't get that. And there's so many other places to get that where I would just basically be repeating people's news. So what this, what Geek Out Online is, is it's my place to kind of geek out in writing. And um, right now, uh, we've got some stuff up there by Jesse Colbert of StarWarsBookReport.com. Head over there uh, for his take on all things EU. We've got uh, a Batman and Robin review coming up. We've got my review of Iron Man 2. All kinds of things happening at geekoutonline.com. This summer, I'm looking at doing in the when I first started Geek Out Online, um, I I was really thinking about um, well, I, it was summer and it was summer headed into season 7 of Smallville, which I thought was going to be the last season. So I started by doing something I called the Summer of Smallville, where I took the reader on a journey through me watching each episode of Smallville individually as it, you know, and I would, you know, I'd, I'd kind of post a quick review, a recap and review of the episodes to kind of give my thoughts and ideas. I'm thinking about revisiting that idea this summer and following through with it, but I'm also thinking about doing a series of blogs on uh, movies that everyone doesn't like and what's good about them. Uh, things like Superman 4, the Masters of the Universe film, um, Spider-Man 3, uh, maybe even Episode 1, which you've heard me talk Episode 1 ad nauseum, uh, so maybe Episode 2. Um, you know, just those kinds of things is, is what I'm looking at doing for Geek Out Online this summer. So hopefully there'll be some material there, some, some nice reading for you this summer to get into. It is summertime, and we're in the thick of summer movie season. Iron Man 2 has kicked off. I was going to talk about Iron Man 2 here, but I've got my review up. I've talked about it in other places. I will say this. I've seen it twice now at the time of this recording, and... The second time around, I wasn't tired. It wasn't midnight showing. I got to say, I enjoyed it. I really like Iron Man too. So if you have a chance to go see it, do so. It's it's different than the first one, and and I think it's different in a good way. In as much as I don't know, they they didn't spend too much time on the origin of a villain. They didn't really try to make you like the villain. Um, the villain was what he was, and so it wasn't. It was a nice classic Marvel. I've had a bad day, and I'm going to take it out on everybody, kind of thing. And um, and it was a really. I don't know. I thought it was a very well put together movie. I really enjoyed it. The climax, the end, was awesome. There was so much action. And someone had said that Iron Man one had more action, was more action packed. I mm, I disagree. I, I do kind of disagree with that. I think Iron Man, the, the the success of Iron Man was getting to see the different armors and him test it out, and that was the journey we were on with Tony Stark. And Iron Man Two is a completely different journey than what um, than what we had in Iron Man in the first Iron Man, and so it feels maybe a little off putting 
at, at first, but once you get into it and once you get on this ride with Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr., Mickey Rourke, Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel L. Jackson, it's it's fun. I do want to address something, though, because I picked it up on the second time I watched. If there's a scene, not if there's a scene, but there is a scene where Tony is talking to Nick Fury, as portrayed by Samuel L. Jackson, and they're in kind of like a secret bunker thing. And this is toward the end. This is when everything should be good to go, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. If you look on the monitors uh, there in, in, the, in the thing, it's footage of the Hulk's attack uh, from the college in The Incredible Hulk. So what we've got here is a classic case of these events take place prior to the events in The Incredible Hulk. In fact, it took place literally six months later. So we're not really, there's not a big continuity thing, and you don't have to worry about, well, I thought Tony had already joined up. I thought Tony had done this. No, the events in Incredible Hulk take place after or at the tail end of what's going on in Iron Man 2. So a really neat continuity thing they put in there. They've got, it seems like they've got things figured out with these Marvel movies. It really does. I'm anxious to see Thor next year, but we'll talk about that as we plow into Thor and that sort of thing. Um, Smallville wrapped up, and you can head over to Starkville's House of Ale, where Derek and I will be talking pretty soon in our 150th episode of Shoe, where we'll be talking about the season finale of Smallville. Let me sum it up for you in three words. Oh, my Lanta. Holy cow. That's five. I, I cannot. Oh, my gosh. It's just. It was a mind-blowing finale. It was the best Smallville season finale we've had since season five. And there was a moment where I stood up and cheered because it was so awesome. And the only thing that would have made it more awesome is a Coca-Cola sign. And when you see it, if you haven't watched the season finale of Smallville yet, when you see it, you'll know what part needed a Coca-Cola sign. But having said all that and, and, and having done that, let's do something we haven't done in a while. Because of the impromptu Geek Out Loud calling Spectacular and our very special... Oh my gosh, let's just stop right here. Stop right now and let us say... Once again, a big thank you to Jess Harnell from Rock Sugar uh, for taking the time out to talk to us. It was so cool. I wish I had an hour to talk with that guy. I really do. He had a lot going on. He was super nice, incredibly busy, and, um, and I just really appreciate him taking the time to come on. Guys, it's a big deal that he, t- he did the Wacko Voice. It really is a big deal that he did the Wacko Voice because there's so many people who have been a part of something successful like that, that they tend to kind of want to shy away from it. Not him. He was so great about it, and and we're so grateful for him. But i got to tell you something. RockSugarBand.com, you need to head over there. I'm not getting any money for promoting these guys. I'm not. They don't even know I'm still talking about them, okay? RockSugarBand.com, go get their album. It should be available for digital download soon. Contact them on the Facebook, on the Twitter and let them know that you heard about him on Geek Out Loud. Let him know that it was worth his time to come on this show because you guys heard about him. And I tell you what, there's a lot of you who are like me that you're like a child of the 80s. You'll love the music. I promise you, you'll love the music. But anyhow, without further ado, let's jump into some emails.
first email comes from Todd Skules. He says, hey, Steve, I love your lost tweets. At some point, can you please do a goal on lost? Would love to hear more in-depth comments on the show from you. Thanks for your time and hard work. Always Todd in Maine. Smokey SP on the Twitter. Uh, Todd, Lost is wrapping up this Sunday, and I, and I think what would be fun to do with Lost, and I'm going to go ahead and put the invitation to him out here right now on the show, is I think it would be fun to have Chris in Boston, who I know is a big Losty, um, to come on once the show is wrapped up and for us to talk all things Lost. Uh, Chris um, is a cool guy, so it'll be like we're all sitting at the cool table with him. But not only that, this is a guy who's been watching the show continuously and so i'm going to put i'm going to extend the hand of invitation out to boston uh and if he'd like to come on we'll, we'll see about that but i think it would be fun at some point to do uh to do a lost a lost show and mainly because i got to watch it all in one big chunk you know i started watching back before this final season uh during the summer and caught up and or during the fall and winter i guess because i guess they started in the spring half of the season and have been watching regularly um, up until the the final episode, which I think here's actually tomorrow night instead of Tuesday, but we're going to be watching. I'm and and once that's done, we may kind of do some do an in depth talk. I'm really interested to see how thing ends. Um, Ashley Miller, who's been on the show, mentioned on in a tweet uh, uh, today, yesterday. He said he said this. He said. Um, how many of us are hoping that these guys end up that that lost ends with them landing the plane in LA and not knowing each other? And I got to tell you, I kind of do. I really kind of do. Except for Kate, I really want Kate to have a happy ending. Um, it looks like ugh, okay. Sh- I'm not going to talk. We're going to wait until everything until the season's over, and we may even wait until this final season comes out on DVD and Blu-ray, so we can talk as spoilery as possible. Because a lot of our listeners, they wait until the DVDs are out to uh to go watch them so todd thanks for that and uh and we'll be we'll be getting into that this comes from logan uh logan is awesome uh she has been singing her little heart out lately um so here's what uh, here's what here's what we've got from her she says steve hey i haven't talked to you in a while hope you're doing well a lot of exclamation points there I'm not sure if I've emailed you about this before, but the latest goal episode reminded me of this. Back when you talked movie scores, I remember thinking, I should email you about one of my favorite scores. Here's the thing. If you know Angel Wings at all, that's Angel. I think it's Angel Wings on the Twitter. It was Angel Wings in the forums. She says, I doubt you'll be surprised when I tell you what it is, and I was not. It's Graham Ravel's uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers The Movie Score. Now, this score is not particularly innovative, but I absolutely adore it, particularly the tracks Journey to the Plateau and Summoning the Ninjetti. <laughs> this here's my Ninjetti over here, and she's going to bring me this. Listen, you got your Judy Chop, your Karate Chop, and your Ninja Chop. Now, don't go ninja in anyone that don't need ninja. Uh, it sounds like a combination to my other favorite scores, Star Wars and Jurassic Park was insanely difficult to track down on CD, though, and I kept finding the motion picture soundtrack, which is also very good since it's include artists like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Van Halen. I do have the motion picture soundtrack, and it's got um, a British band Shampoo on there. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Um, it does have Van Halen. It's got Chili Peppers. It's got uh, a version of Free Ride on there. I've got the power is on there. 
they Might Be Giants has a track on there, Sensing Around. So, yeah, it's a good CD. Uh, she says she was stoked when she finally found it and just thought I'd want to share with you. Best wishes, uh, Logan. Um, Logan, I haven't heard it, so I'll try to track it down. I, Graham, I think that's how you pronounce it, or Graham, 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 Graham Ravel. Uh, he did the score portion of things for the Daredevil movie, and I know that was pretty good. And his name is not unfamiliar with me. I know he's done several things. I just, I, I'm not familiar enough with the Power Rangers movie to really comment on the score. Um, this comes from Dave Atterbury. He says, Dear Steve, I've been meaning to write you for a long, long time, and I've finally had something to share with you that I hope could add to the awesomeness of Geek Out Loud. I, like you, have grown up a part of the Star Wars generation, being born in 1976, and I've been a devoted fan ever since I first laid eyes on the galaxy far, far away. My earliest memory of seeing a movie in the theater was going to see Empire with my parents. Every time I've seen a Star Wars... Happy 30th, Empire! Every time I've seen a Star Wars movie in the theater, it has been an awesome experience. I think seeing the Yoda Doku, or Dooku, rather, unless you're George Lucas, that's a Doku, uh, duel on opening night at midnight with a packed house of fans was and is the best time I've ever had movies. Pause! Here's the thing. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Uh, yeah, it, that is an awesome moment. That is an awesome moment. I was at one point with a crowd of people watching that, and when you heard the click, of the cane, uh, and you saw Yoda's shadow, you didn't really hear much else after that for a little bit. And when he goes nuts, oh my gosh. It's still so cool. It really, truly, truly is. It was just, that was one of those magical moments. I'm sorry, you can talk bad, you can talk trash about George Lucas all you want, but that moment, Rob Coleman and those guys just did an outstanding job of, of making that fight work out. So, um, um, <clears throat> He goes on, the feeling of excitement and wonder has been my personal gold standards for entertainment. I've often wished they would have special screenings of Star Wars films in the theater just so we could see them on the big screen all over again. Well, I've had a Star Wars experience to rival that feeling of seeing the magic on the big screen again, a special event called Star Wars in Concert. Anyone who has the bonus DVD Star Wars A Musical Journey that came with the soundtrack to Revenge of the Sith will be familiar with the concept behind the concert. On the DVD, the Star Wars saga is told in a series of music videos accompanied by narration provided by Ian McDiarmid. For those of you who don't know, Ian McDiarmid played um, Emperor Palpatine in the Star Wars saga. And those it is awesome. I do have that. I went out the day, of course I got it the day it was released. But yeah, that CD and DVD, that DVD is really neat. Star Wars in Concert is an adaptation of that DVD where a live orchestra performs the music and narration and is provided by the one, or the narration is provided by the one and only C-3PO himself, Anthony Daniels. Having watched the DVD many times with my kids, I knew what to expect at the concert, but what I didn't anticipate was the experience of feeling the power of the greatest film score of all time played for me with a live audience. Indeed, sir. I got to go with our good friend Dave. And uh, the Ash went with me and Dave's wife. We were up in, uh, up in uh, Gwinnett County, and we got to see it. And it was so cool. It was just great. The sound was perfect. The screens were huge. The high def was highly defined. It was great. I absolutely loved seeing Star Wars in concert and, uh, and really hoped that I would have a chance to go again uh, when it was making its way back through the States, but I, I missed it while it was in Florida. Um, 
But if it comes back around, I'd love to go see it again. It's just that good. And if it comes to your area, you need to go see it. They're, they're touring back through the states. Uh, you have a chance to go see it. If you have an opportunity to go, go. It is totally worth it. Uh, when the lights went down and the TH logo came up on that giant screen behind the performance, I felt like I was watching the movie in the world's biggest home entertainment center. The stage setup is a work of art. If you go to www.starwarsinconcert.com, the website design actually shows you how they set the stage. There's a main movie screen. There are also screens, quote-unquote, to the side and top uh, where they projected other images on the curtains. That it is really cool. As they played the 20th Century Fox logo music, it felt... It really felt like I was seeing the movies on the big screen again. The opening number with the main Star Wars theme was indescribably epic. The lights, the movie clips, the live performance. Oh my heck, I have to go put on the DVD right now. It was so good, Steve. You have to go. I've been, Dave, and it was awesome. Before the concert, I assumed that the narration by Anthony Daniels between each musical number was going to be pre-taped and shown on the screen. But no. See, 3PO was there in person, and I don't want to spoil who introduces him, so we'll continue on. Anthony's performance was fantastic. He came across just as excited as all of us in the audience. He really brought the concert together with humor and reverence for the material. The concert is different than DVD. There are new and different pieces performed, so don't think that if you've seen the DVD, you've seen the concert. That's true. In particular, the closing piece was a new surprise, the extended version of the throne room finale that paid tribute to the entire saga and the man behind the music, John Williams, it brought the house down. It truly was a great feeling to see the Star Wars saga in all its glory on the big screen with thousands of fellow Jedi the musical performance was flawless, beautiful, and moving. It was truly a great experience to see the glue of the Star Wars movies. The music paid tribute in a unique concert experience. Steve, you have to go. I've been. This is the next best thing to seeing the films themselves in the theater again. In some ways, it's even better. After listening for your near a year now across podcasts without number, okay, it's about six or so, I can't thank you enough for all your hard work. Uh, well, thank you. Um, maybe someday we can be friends, Dave Atterbury. Yeah, uh, Dave... Um, <laughs> Um, Dave uh, invited me to stay with him at Star Wars Celebration. <laughs> I don't know him. I mean, I literally never talked to him. And he's like, hey, come stay with me. So we're going to see. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. I don't mean to make fun. But he did use me uh, to get his wife to let him go down to Star Wars Celebration in Orlando. I have been to the Star Wars concert, I, you know, and I am going to Star Wars Celebration in Orlando. I am really excited to go back to Star Wars Celebration. I had such a blast at Star Wars Celebration 3. If you don't believe me, just watch the Celebration video on StarWars.com. I even say, it's just fun. It's a blast. So uh, go check that out. That's cool. I talk to those people like, Okay, let's pull the curtain back. Let's tell you the story. The year was 2005. We were in Indianapolis, Indiana. My friend Marcus and I, we were at Star Wars Celebration 3. I don't want to take away from the awesome... I, can't, I cannot stress enough with you right now, with Dave, if you have an opportunity to go see Star Wars in concert, do so. It is fascinating. It is wonderful. All right, having said that, Indianapolis, Indiana. Picture Indianapolis, Indiana, 2005. Year was 2005, Indianapolis, Indiana. The uh, convention center there, um, we were in line the first morning. There was a chill in the air, but it wasn't too cold, okay? Uh, it was a nice morning. We were in line. We were waiting for the doors to open. The line wrapped around the building all the way back up into the RCA dome. Um, and we were out on the sidewalk across from a parking deck, kind of across from a church. 
And it was so surreal to look at across and, and see in the front of this church a woman going by pushing a stroller with a kid and it, you know, a man and a you know, a couple of guys in, in, in suits walking by, you know, just, you know, headed to their business or whatever the case may be. And then a few stormtroopers, you know, just casually walking up the walking up the sidewalk in Indianapolis. And um I just got wound up. I was just so excited about the experience of Celebration Three. I just got wound up, and we just started that. We were stopping everybody in the costume. I had a video camera. Marcus makes fun of me for taking a video camera, and the footage never being seen. I really need to sit down and try to edit that together at some point. Um, we had so much fun stopping people in, cons- in, in costume, talking to them, taking pictures. We were. Um, I was yelling at the people in the parking deck who were just watching the lines go down. You know, waiting for the lines to go down. I was like, "Hey!" Hey up there, give me a what what. And we just, it was so much fun. Well, here comes, I can't remember their names. I know one of them was Duncan, the other was Amy. And they are from Lucasfilm, and they're the documentary people, and they're the people that that's who I'm talking to when I say, it's just fun, it's a blast. And I've got the camera on them. They've got the camera on me. I'm asking them all kinds of questions about who they are and what they do. And finally, Amy says, can we ask you some questions now? I'm like, oh, sure, that'd be great. And uh, put the camera down and, and talk to them for about three or four minutes about uh, why I was there and what Star Wars meant to me and that sort of thing. And it was cool to get to see that used when I said, it's just fun. It's a blast. So uh, that was a fun moment. Celebration is I'm looking forward to Orlando. I really am. It's going to be hot, but I'm really looking forward to it anyway. So uh, even though I'm fat and I don't really enjoy the uh, the heat type stuff. So those are old emails, by the way. Like that's from back in October of last year. Uh, moving on. Um, this comes from Melvin. He says, hey, Big Honkin, I've been listening for a while and I've always been entertained. I first started listening to 10th Wonder, then I started on Skynex, then I went to Starkville, and finally got to Geek Out Loud. I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida, and some of my family is from Waycross. Huh. So I'm familiar with some of the areas you reference. Anyway, I have a few things that I want to say that have been building up over the past few podcasts. First, regarding Podcast 41, there was a Kubrick cartoon on CBS. I knew it, as well as Donkey Kong. Knew it, as well as Donkey Kong Jr. I'm right. In the Donkey Kong cartoon, I remember that Mario's woman was named Paula. Also, yeah, I remember the Millie Vanilli episode of the Super Mario cartoon. Thank you. That was pretty much the last one they aired. Either that or I was almost going to the Marines the next year and I never saw any new ones after that. Okay. Also, I'm not sure if it's an obscure 80s video game, but what about Yars Revenge? I remember that name, but I don't really know what went on with Yars Revenge. It also had no purpose like Dig Dug, but I also remember spending a lot of time on it. As for best Derek and Steve podcast... The Back to the Future podcast is the best to me. The part where you pause after mentioning Wendy's cracks me up every time. <laughs> I had to tell the girl next to me here at the office what happened. I always laugh out loud. But she probably didn't think it was funny as I did. Oh, and the superhero KFC report was really funny too. Thanks, Melvin. You mentioned a few times about people realizing if they are geeks or not, and I was never sure that I was one. Then a simple algebra equation came to my head. Steve equals geekdom. Mel Taco likes everything Steve likes, with the exception of Muppets and Elf. Oh my gosh, how can you not like either one of those things? Therefore, Mel Taco equals geekdom, and no, I don't usually write in third person. 
I've also read a few comics to keep from being bored while I was in the Marines and got into X-Men. I probably should have known I was a geek at that point, too. Of course, there's my love of Star Wars, and that should have also been an eye-opener. None of the girls I've ever dated gave me the impression they considered me a geek, though. Well, you went to the Marines, so obviously you're hot. But maybe they were geek lovers and figured I knew. Also, I've liked your Brave and the Bold format on Starkville. When you and Bailey talk, I really want to read up on Superman again. I'm not sure what I should do first. Read the comics to Public Enemies or watch the cartoon first. Either way, buddy. Either way. I would say watch the DVD first, if you hadn't already. But I'm sure since December you figured this out. Um, he says, uh, since you extended... Uh, let's see what's going on. Says he's listening to flicks now and looking forward to some stuff that we were on. And he says, keep up the good work. And that's Mel Taco in Southern California. Mel, thanks for, for writing in. Jacksonville, Florida, some of your family's from Waycross. I'm going to be talking about Waycross in a few minutes, Mel, so hang in there. Uh, David Dupree says, Steve, I love your podcast. I started listening to Goal recently from the beginning, and I'm a year behind. Just finished the 25th anniversary. You'll catch up soon, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I also was born the year Star Wars came out in September of 77. I remember seeing Star Wars on TV many times and renting the tapes many, many times. Many, many times. I even copied the tapes. Ooh! So I wouldn't have to keep renting them thinner. Uh, first, my first purchase was the THX box set of Star Wars in a store closing sale. I remember that. I remember this purchase most clearly because the shelf was empty save for one box set of Star Wars and it seemed to call to me. I saw someone else nearby, and as their gaze fell in the box, said, I knew I had to get it first. I've kept these tapes because the 1997 DVD versions were, quote-unquote, enhanced, and you couldn't get the original versions on DVD for the longest time until uh, recently. That's true. Um, a few years ago, I was given a Darth Vader cookie-slash-candy jar by my boss for Christmas. It's one of my prized possessions still. Um, there are certain things I've kept from my childhood that I'll never part with. In addition to the Darth Vader cookie jar head, I have a plastic Yoda which came with the DVDs of the quote-unquote enhanced Star Wars trilogy, a Gizmo plush doll, a Spike plush from The Land Before Time, etc. Uh, you know, that's the thing. is is As I grow older, I realize I have to let go of some things, but there are a few things from my childhood that I will not let go, namely my entire Star Wars collection. Moving on. His top five hero superhero movies since 1988. X-Men, Iron Man, Dark Man, The Dark Knight, and Batman, the 1989 with Keaton. Honorable mentions are The Punisher with Thomas Jane, The Incredible Hulk, Batman Begins, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, and Superman. Best soundtracks, he says, I agree with your best soundtracks. Um, the ones you missed are two of my favorites, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and The Last of the Mohicans. Those two are great soundtracks. David, I agree, and I think we've touched on Robin Hood even for a little bit. Um, really quickly, let's jump one more that's, I've got two more, actually, um, that are more recent. This first one comes from Scott Gardner. Scott Gardner of Two True Freaks. He says, Steve, just wanted to let you know, I listened to and thoroughly enjoyed your latest episode. Michael Bailey tipped me off to it as it was something he thought I might get into, and he was right. Despite being a Star Wars fan since seeing the first film in the theater at age six, I've only just recently begun to delve into the world of the EU beyond the original handful of novels like Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the Brian Daly Han Solo Trilogy, and the Lando books. 
I read and cherished the Marvel comic Star Wars run as a kid and was also a huge fan of the Russ Manning newspaper strip, but that was about it. I read and absolutely hated the Timothy Zahn novels when they debuted, and I think that, coupled with the 90s style of the earliest Dark Wars comic offerings, like Dark Empire and the Tales of the Jedi series, conspired to keep me disinterested in the EU all this time. All right, I gotta stop right there, Scott. Scott Garner is the host of Two True Freaks. They've got a great series of podcasts. Michael Bailey's on a couple uh, with him, Back to the Bins, as well as Tales of the Justice Society of America. Uh, Scott and his co-hosts do monthly Star Wars monthly Star Wars Mondays, where one Monday a month they talk about uh, some of the classic Star Wars Marvel comics. We'll talk about that in a second. The first time I listened to one of those, he expressed his hatred of the Timothy Zahn novels, and my jaw hit the floor. I have heard one other person say that they did not enjoy the Timothy Zahn novels. And I don't understand that. Because quite frankly, to me, there's no other series of novels in the EU that quite nail the feeling of Star Wars the way... No one writes, I feel like, the the spirit of Star Wars as well as what Zahn did in those first three novels. Not even Zahn later on did. Um, I thought you had a compelling villain. I thought you had a great overall story. I thought that you had, based on the knowledge that we had of Star Wars at the time, a compelling story about Luke and his continuing on. You know, it was only five years after Return of the Jedi, so everything was still new. Uh, Some people complain about the Han and Leia thing and that Han seemed kind of, you know, ratcheted down from what he was. But he, you know, it, it, it was... I didn't mind. I liked what they did. I like what Zahn did with everything. So, and it just really blew my mind that he didn't like those things. I thought the new characters that Zahn introduced were good characters. Uh, Talon Card, Mara Jade, I thought were really good. Grand Admiral Thrawn's one of the greatest villains ever in the Star Wars universe and outside of Vader and Palpatine. I really think that. Um, I think it would be interesting to see what, I think it'd be interesting to sit down and talk about what Thrawn would have done differently than Palpatine had he had Palpatine's ear a little more closely. Um, how he might have handled things had he and Dooku teamed up. Uh, what his purpose for Maul would have been. What I would like to really kind of you know pair him off with some other people and see how he does. But <clears throat> I don't know. I just I, I, that surprised me. I did not like the quote unquote '90s style, the earliest Dark Horse comics offerings either. Um, like Dark Empire. Tales of the Jedi I didn't really enjoy. I, those were things that I, I tried to get into, and they just didn't feel like Star Wars to me. As I say, though, I've recently dipped my toe back into the EU, and despite the extreme hit-and-miss nature of the novels, I'm digging it and have found much to love in that world. It was nice to discover that Dark Horse Comics did eventually get its act together and has been delivering some truly awesome Star Wars comics for quite a while now. I will say I agree with that legacy being up there among them. I've been scarfing up their back issues and omnibi like crazy and have found their prequel era adventures to be truly fascinating. The series that would eventually become Republic, Star Wars Empire, and Star Wars Rebellion are great reads, and I've been talking them up to anyone who will listen that I know has an interest in Star Wars. I've especially tried to talk them up to folks that are disenchanted with the prequel movies and universe. On that subject, thank you for defending the Clone Wars. Like you, I don't understand what all the hate is about. It's more Star Wars on TV! Every week! What is wrong with people? I would have gladly and gleefully killed a busload of nuns and orphans if it meant getting a weekly Star Wars TV show when I was a kid. Now here it is, and everybody just wants to complain about it. That makes me very sad. 
Yeah, not everyone's complaining about it. What really set people off was the whole Mandalorian thing. People don't like Ahsoka, and rather than sit back and wait and trust what's being done, they they like to, I don't know, you know how people are, you know how fandom is? Now here it is, and everyone just wants to complain about it, that makes me very sad. And not a little upset with my brother and sister Star Wars nerds. What's funny though, is that I do understand something of the frustration I think some of the fans are experiencing. While I firmly enjoy and consider myself a fan of the Clone Wars, and indeed the whole prequel, prequel saga, I recently discovered Karen Travis's Republic Commando novels. I love her story and her take on the Mandalorians and their culture. Her unique insight into the clone mindset and the nature of the war through the eyes of these guys on the ground. She has truly made me, or she has made me truly emphasize, empathize rather, with the clones and see them not only as fascinating individuals, but has also helped shape, shape and change my opinion of the Jedi themselves for allowing what is essentially the of the helpless, voiceless pawns bred solely to die for a system they haven't any rights under. That's powerful stuff. Okay, here's the thing with that. This is one of my beefs with the EU in the prequel era. It... it <sighs> for over a thousand generations, the Jedi were the guardians of peace in the Old Republic before the dark times, before the Empire. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Episode 4. Here's my... Okay. Let's talk Jedi. In the prequel EU stuff, whether it be Travis, whether it be a lot of these a lot of these things, whenever you begin to explore the mindset of these clones and stuff, it immediately begins to vilify the Jedi. The Jedi are being thrust into a situation that... They are, they are very open and honest about it. Even Qui-Gon says, we can only protect you, we can't fight a war for you, when he's talking to Amidala about just settling a skirmish between the Trade Federation and her planet. He recognized he was getting into a situation in an area that even as a Jedi, he wasn't equipped to deal with. The Jedi are not warriors. And Yoda drives that home to Luke when Luke says, I'm looking for a great warrior. And he says, oh, wars not make one great. You know, he's he tries to, even through that acting crazy and silliness there before Luke even realizes he's Yoda, express to him that this is not something we hang our laurels on. This is not something that the Jedi would ever look back and be proud of. And this is not a happy time. The dark times are not from the moment the Emperor takes over through the, through the Empire. The dark times are the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars are a dark time for the Jedi. And they are just as caught up and it's one of those things where Palpatine when he moved all the pieces on the board to his liking, he moved so quickly and so decisively that all the Jedi could do was react. And the way they had to react was get involved in this war to try to preserve the Republic to try to preserve this democracy and they end up fighting with clones on their side. Now, if you want to get into the morality and the debate there, that's great. But my thing is, is you can't fault the Jedi for this. It's not the Jedi's fault. They're not omnipotent. They're not all powerful. They're not all knowing. And it's one of those things where they're here now. They have to do it. And if you look at people like Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you look at especially Anakin, you know, one of Anakin's things was is he didn't like it when these guys died. They never, they're never okay with the death of these clones. They're never okay with it. They understand that it has to happen. They understand that this is their job. But they're never okay with it. The Clone Wars, as you know, Scott, has started to 
delve into some of that through a few of their episodes. You've had a rogue clone that, that's turned his back on the rest of the clone army. You've had the one guy that, that left and he's in hiding, you know, and, and, and gets found by Rex or whatever. You've had the Boba Fett situation where he talks about we're not brothers and, and this sort of thing. And you begin to, and you see them even trying to get their own identity with the way they'll do their hair differently, the tats they'll wear, the way they'll uh, deco up their armor, that sort of thing. But in the long run, in the end, you know, you can't, I don't know, I just have such a hard time when people start coming down on the Jedi. Because the Jedi are victims in this tragedy. You know, they played right into the Emperor's hands. They, they, they played right into his moods. And, um, and, and their biggest mistake, if there is the biggest mistake the Jedi made was trying to force Anakin in the box that they had tried to stuff the Force in. And that's a whole different discussion. I mean, if you, and, and again, you guys know, you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you know you're going to get me going on Star Wars, and, and I won't shut up. So, um... I do understand where people come on that. I guess I understand where people come from with that argument, though, but I just don't see it. I don't agree with it, and I think that what... And it just bothers me because it's so easy to go there. It's so easy to vilify these guys. And that seems to be a trend that takes place in science fiction and in comics. We want to vilify the heroes. We want to make the villains super compelling, and we want to vilify the heroes. I hate that. I really do. I don't like that concept at all. Heroes are heroes. Let the heroes be heroes. It's okay. Do they have flaws? Sure, that's fine. But let them not be defined by their flaws. Let them be defined by their heroism. The villains. That's great to have some compelling villains. But guess what? You don't have to sympathize with every villain that's out there. And um, and so I don't. I just feel like that's a trap some people fall into. Now he goes on. And I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get off on that tangent. Um, it is powerful stuff when you begin to do that, but it just, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm to the point where I don't, I don't like that. Okay, he goes on. I don't pretend to know or understand the nature of the breakup between her and Lucasfilm. In fact, I only just learned of it, but I can tell you I was deeply disappointed in the rest of the Mandalorian saga on the Clone Wars show, just in the sense that it didn't remotely resemble the rich world and culture that Travis had painted in her novels. Well, Travis had, you know, hundreds of pages to be able to do that. The Clone Wars had 90 minutes. You know, I, I, and the thing is, the Clone Wars can revisit that. It's not that the Mandalorians are through and done with. I don't believe that for a second. We'll probably see them come on down the pike. The thing is, is, uh, uh, okay, the episodes were solid in their own right, just not what I was hoping to see. That's fine. That's the thing that's so strange. As completely anal retentive as I often am about my other geek things, like my comics and my Star Trek, I'm not so hung up on the minutiae when it comes to Star Wars and the Clone Wars. I'm just thankful we're getting more of it, uh, and that, by and large, is pretty cool. It is really cool. The, the Clone Wars are. They've been really good. The Mandalorian thing, you know, you can... People like it, people don't like it, whatever the case may be. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the first two episodes of that arc. The third one was kind of iffy to me. It, it felt like... It didn't feel like the th climactic third act of that three-part, three excuse me, three-part story that we had there. Um, <clears throat> he goes on. He says, "I will agree that there's an awful lot of EU stuff out there, and that a goodly portion of it is mediocre at best. But I think there's been some attempt to scale that back a bit in recent times. 
There has been. I don't see quite the out-and-out -out, uh, glut as it was a few years ago. Agreed. It could just be my imagination, but I'd like to think that maybe someone at Lucasfilm saw what was going on and decided to put a little more quality control in place. I would hope so. I think it's, I don't even know that it's Lucasfilm as much as it is the publishers. I, you know, I know that's the case at Dark Horse. I, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I know that's the case at Dark Horse. I mean, Dark Horse is going so far as to end series while they're still hot and while people are still enjoying them, so they end on a high note rather than fizzle out, you know, rather than go when everyone wants to see them go kind of thing. Um, I can easily go on day because your excellent episode touched on so many things I would love to discuss with you. Let me just close with one last thought. While I agree with you that my initial reaction to Klingon speakers are those who actually live the Mando lifestyle is to be more than a little freaked out too, I've really tried to make an effort to quote-unquote practice what I preach lately about being more tolerant and understanding of my fellow geeks. We're all in this together, aren't we? Geek elitism sucks. It's my, it is ultimately total BS. We are only fooling ourselves when we think that there's much difference at all between us and our Superman t-shirt sitting in our comic cave with mixed shelves, adorned with action figures, watching Clone Wars and geeking out to the trailers for upcoming Brave and the Bold episodes, and the guy who marched in the 501st, and the gal who went to jury duty in her Starfleet costume. There really isn't. That's something I'd love to talk with you about. The, <laughs> the distinctions are so petty when you get right down to it. And while it's easy to point and say, look at that freak, Whew, I'm glad I'm not that bad, think for a moment about the uh, guts it takes to do that and do what they do and take the flack you know they get for doing it. In the end, they get my respect for that. Let me comment on your 501st comment real quick. I have, I, I've never belittled anyone who's in the 501st. I think that because, A, all the charity work those guys do, and the care and quality that goes into the costuming portion of things. These are people that really care about getting things right when it comes to their costuming and all. You know, it's, it's not... At Celebration 3, I was talking to one of the guys from the 501st, and he was asking, you ever thought about doing any costume? I said, dude, look at me. I said, I can put on slug skin and go as Job of the Hut." or a Gamorrean guard, and I don't want to do all that makeup. Um, you know, we kind of chuckled and laughed or whatever, you know, and, and he's like, you can be a sand person. I'm like, you ain't never seen a fat sand person. So you ain't never seen a fat Jedi. Just because you throw robes on something don't mean it ain't fat. Uh, I could be Masamata, I guess, or, or someone like that. Um, really, if I were going to costume, I'd be Dex. I would get a Dexter mask, Dexter Jetster from Episode 2, and, uh, and I would roll with that. Um, anyhow, I, I digress. That my thing is, is those guys put so much quality into what and thought into what they do, um, along with all the charity work and stuff they do. There's nothing bad to be said about the 501st. When I, I do get to be an elitist geek when I start. Here's the thing, and I've said this many times on my show, and and I'll say it again. The difference to me in in just being a geek because you love something, you enjoy it. And if you can speak Klingon or Mando, that's your business. That's fine. Do I think that's weird? Yes. Does it bother? Yes, because it when people started speaking Mando, it really blurred the lines between Trek fandom and Star Wars fandom. There's always been that divide. There's always been that friendly competition between the two factions. Okay? To me, it's always been friendly. Um, where we take little jabs at each other, that sort of thing. I digress. My thing is, 
there are a lot of people, and some of you may be even listening to this. Some of you may be even listening to this podcast right now. Just reach out your hand, and I want to touch you on the hand, and I want you to just... I'm sorry. Some of you may be listening right now who are like this, that this is your life, that the comic books you read, the sci-fi, the movies you're into, that that is the most important thing to you. And the thing about Geek Out Loud, the reason it's a safe place to geek out... Yeah, we'll pick back and forth a little bit. It's always friendly, though. It's always meant to be friendly. It's never meant to be hateful. Um, the thing about Geek Out Loud is, is the reason it's a safe place to geek out is because I recognize that this stuff is not so important to get worked up about that if you disagree with me, that we can't still hang out and be friends and talk about what we agree about. Geek Out Loud is a celebration of the things that I enjoy, not a thrashing of the things I hate. That's what this is supposed to be. And the reason it is that is because there is a larger world out there. And my goal through Geek Out Loud has been, I just want to have a good time. And I just want to celebrate what I enjoy. And and it's easy to get caught up in this stuff. And if your hobby becomes your life, then there's a problem. And I think that that's where the geek elitism comes from to me. Not so much in, hey, we're going to pick on each other for talking, you know, and Klingon or Mando or whatever the case may be. We're going to throw some good-natured jabs out there. But when people get just hateful about things because it's so important to them. And unless you're writing the stuff, and by writing I mean unless you're paid by Marvel or DC or Image or, or Dark Horse or, you know, you're drawing the stuff or you're the filmmaker who's making you shouldn't really get all that worked up about it. Because at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, you can choose whether to participate in it or not. And, um, and, then, and that's just my thing. It's, it's one of those things I like to celebrate what I enjoy rather than, uh, than get in. Anyhow, he says, um, I think it's better we look in the mirror and laugh at ourselves and only playfully tease each other. That's what I just said. But also remember how vitally important it is to pull together and defend our geek culture from those that really do point at us and attempt to viciously mock. I'm looking at you, Big Bang Theory. Again, thanks for the most interesting and thought-provoking episode. And that comes from Scott Gardner uh, of Two True Freaks. And they have some great, um, their intros are great. I really enjoy, I've come to find myself enjoying those. I said we had two more. That one went on for a little bit. So instead of jumping into this one, I want to get into the heart of the matter of what we're talking about this week. Hold on just a second. That was me uh, in my little rolly chair rolling over to pick up some some comic books off the shelf. What? Comic books? Yes, comic books. Hear this? That's comic book pages flipping. Uh, What I thought would be neat to do is to talk about on this episode uh, one of my favorite story arcs in comic books of all time. And here is the thing. It's going to be something that maybe, I can, I can probably guarantee a lot of our listenership has never read. And if you have read it, you may think it's total trash. And I just, I don't know. I don't know what got me thinking about this whole storyline. I don't know what got me talk, wanting to talk about it. But I figured this is the place to do it because it's Geek Out Loud. It's a safe place to geek out. So, without further ado, let's talk... Fantastic Four, issues 313 to 319, from circa 1987-88. 
Okay, before we jump into this, there are a few things that you need to know about the Fantastic Four if you don't already, okay? Let's have a fireside chat with Big Honk and Steve. <clears throat> now, for those of you who are big comic fans, you know who the Fantastic Four is. You don't really care to talk about all the history and everything, and I'm not going to get into the history. I'm not going to get into origins or anything like that. I'm going to get into my origin story with the Fantastic Four that I think I've spoken about here on the podcast. <clears throat> In my house growing up, there was a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt was this orange guy that looked like his skin was rock, and he wore blue underwear. And the t-shirt said under him, other thing. And I was always like, who is this thing? And where, from whence does he come? And he always looked cool. And I just, because at that time on the TV, you had Spider-Man and his amazing friends. You had some super friends. Uh, and later on, you'd have a Superman TV show. But that was about it. We didn't really see much else, um, superhero-wise. And so I didn't really know the Fantastic Four. And um, so it was, the year was 1987. I was in fifth grade and I was in our library. And somehow I found a book about the Incredible Hulk. And it was a little child's reader, you know, it wasn't very thick. It had reprinted in it a couple of Hulk issues. So maybe it was about 70 or 80 pages long, but most of them were comic book pages. But between the two or three issues that it reprinted, among those being uh, Hulk number one, um, and then a couple more from later on in, in, in his in his run. There was, I think, and there was a fight with the Absorbing Man, and I think in that book there was. I know for a fact in that book the other one was uh, Doc Sampson and a journey into the Hulk's mind with Doc Sampson. Well, next to the shelf, next to the book on that shelf was a Captain America book with done similarly with a couple of reprints in it and some information about Cap. In between, and then another book with this group of people on the cover. One guy was stretching and he had a four on his chest. One guy was on fire. The chick was turning invisible. Or I'm sorry, there was a woman on there that was turning invisible. And there was the thing. And so I'm like, oh, that's where this guy comes from. I think I will read up about him and find out what I can about the thing. Well, in this particular book, uh, they reprinted, of course, the first issue. They reprinted a battle with Dr. Doom, and I can't remember what else they reprinted. But it was just so... That was my first true exposure to comics. Um, as far as really reading comics seriously. Uh, you know, and really starting to delve into the history of these characters and who they were and what they're all about and that sort of thing. So it was that summer... Uh, or not long after I picked up those books, I had a friend who, for some reason, had some comics sitting around, and he gave them to me. Among those were Hulk 272, uh, featuring Rocket Raccoon, um, and an Iron Man issue that I don't remember what it was, and a couple other things. I think there might have been a Superman in there, something like that. Um, you know, I thumbed through it. I, I enjoyed the Hulk, but I was really interested in this whole... Fantastic Four thing. Now remember, this is 1987-88 as I'm a kid. That summer, we were in, actually not even that summer, it would have been that Christmas. We used to go to Brunswick, Georgia at Christmas time, and our family would go Christmas shopping. And we would buy things for each other. You know, we were kids, so my dad would give us a few bucks, and the kids would all go in together on a gift for each other, that sort of thing. Well, we were in this mall, and there was a place in the mall called The Book Mine. And the book mine was a bookstore. 
But in there, they had a magazine rack, and they had a lot of comics on, on the rack. And along with the comics, they had a, a place. I never imagined this would exist. But there was this part of the counter that extended away from where the guy, uh, where the guy sat and rung people up. And it was like a wall that came up to about my chest. And inside this part of the counter were back issues of comic books. And you could thumb through them and see. And he had a price guide sitting there that you would look up on the price guide to see what he would sell them for, that sort of thing. Well, I found this as I was thumbing through. It was Fantastic Four number 296. It was a Marvel 25th anniversary uh, comic. And it, the, what Marvel did that year for their 25th anniversary, what they called their 25th anniversary, was they did a gray border and around and in the main picture you had a picture of one of the characters uh, from that book. And around them the border was characters of the Marvel Universe, some small little images of the characters of the Marvel Universe. Michael Bailey could probably tell you who drew these things. I was just glad when the day came that I could finally name all of these characters. Anyhow... Um, on the Fantastic Four, there's the thing, and he's wearing like his trench coat and his fedora and the sunglasses, you know, you can barely tell it's the thing. And so I picked this up. I bought it as a back issue. I don't remember how much I paid for it. The cover price is $1.50. Um, and it is an oversized book. This is probably, I've had since that time now, I've gotten several of these 25th anniversary books, and I really think this was the best, the most well-written one. It is... 64 pages, no ads whatsoever except for the very end. Well, there's no ads whatsoever, not even the very end. It's 64 pages. It retells the origin in about two or three pages. See, what had happened was, this is where we're going to have to go back in time now. You ready? Because I have to tell you about Secret Wars. Secret Wars was the greatest comic book crossover ever. There it is. I said it. You can disagree with me if you want to. I... I Secret Wars I love. I love Secret Wars. The premise of Secret Wars was there was a group of heroes and a group of villains that were removed from Earth by this powerful being from beyond. Hence, they called him the Beyonder. Or it, the Beyonder. And he, this thing, this this entity, this Beyonder, had just like limitless, omnipotent power. And he put together this planet from with chunks of pieces from other planets where the heroes were to do battle with the villains and the winners would get their heart's desire. Well, the heroes are like, well, we've got to win this just to keep them from being stupid. And what we're going to do is just wish our way back home. That's how we're going to get home is we're going to win this thing. Well, in the midst of it, you had all kinds of drama take place. You had the villains turning on each other, and you had the villains working together. You had Doctor Doom with his own agenda. You had the Beyonder with all his stuff. You had... It was amazing. It was such a fun story. In the middle of the story, about issue number eight, we got the black-suited Spider-Man. This is where we got Spider-Man the black suit from. The problem with the Secret Wars thing is, is you had an issue, let's say it was Hulk. And there was the issue of Hulk that took place before the Secret Wars. The Secret Wars lasted a year. And at the end of that issue, he was stepping into this thing in Central Park that had appeared that the Beyonder used to transfer all these people to Battleworld. And then the very next issue, he was stepping out. Uh, walking with a crutch, by the way. Um, and so it is that the crossover aspect didn't really work all that great. You know, the, the, the Secret Wars crossover was... 
just before and just after. And, and that was about that. that. There really wasn't much else to the Secret Wars crossovers for that big event. But it was awesome. There were superhero fights, and there was Galactus, and there was battles. It was great. Well, the Thing found out while he was on planet that he could turn back to human. He could go back and forth from human to Thing at will. So when everybody left, he opted to stay behind. So there's a few comics of his own title, and the Thing had his own title uh, called The Thing, um, where he was actually on Battleworld doing his thing. And uh, <laughs> well, he eventually comes back to Earth. Well, while he was gone, Reed and Sue had to replace the thing, so they brought in She-Hulk to the team. At the time, I want to say that was right before, right after John Byrne had been writing the Fantastic Four. I think he wrote a few issues with She-Hulk. Um, I'm not sure. The 296, the first one I ever bought, was um, was scripted actually by Stan Lee, and uh, there were different pencilers on each one. You had on on, on different pages. You had. Uh, Barry Windsor Smith, you had Ron Friends, John Buscema, uh, Mark Silvestri, Jerry Ordway did some of the pages, um, you know, and you had different people inking uh, the pages just because it was a big, I mean, this was really like a big deal for them. And it's a great book, 296, Fantastic Four 296. And what's great is that even though the art changes, it's not a jarring change in each one. I'm not here to review 296, but basically 296 is the thing's reunion, is his coming back to the Fantastic Four in a way. And there's a lot that had gone on. Well, he's moping, he's sad, he's upset about everything that's going on. In his absence, uh, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, fell in love with the thing's girlfriend, uh, the blind sculptress Alicia Masters. And uh, so he was really upset, kind of blue, you know, the thing's one of those characters that <clears throat> has had so many different things. He's one of those really multi-layered characters because he's so much fun, but at the same time, he's so sad, you know? Well, as it were, Reed and Sue, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, would leave the Fantastic Four. They were founding members, but they wanted to go raise their son. This was around the time that Steve Englehart came on to write the Fantastic Four. He got rid of Reed and Sue. He didn't get rid of them. He moved them off to go raise their son, Franklin. And the team then consisted of, am I boring anyone? I'm sorry. I'll get into the meat of the story in a second. I just felt like I had to do all this background work. Um, did I mention there was a Secret Wars 2 that did cross over into a bunch of books with the story, but it wasn't very good? Um, it was. I don't know. I won't say it wasn't very good. It's really awkward. It. The Beyonder comes to Earth, and he gets a jerry curl. Okay. Um, anyhow, the Fantastic Four then consisted of the thing, the Human Torch, Crystal of the Inhumans, who was like an elemental. She had power. She has power over all the elements. And a woman named Sharon Ventura, who had been a lady wrestler, who had been abused by some people and had a real problem with men. And um, But she and Ben had struck up a friendship, and so Ben asked her to come on. She had some augmented strength, you know, that sort of thing. Well, they were in this whole adventure against this villain that I haven't seen in anything since, named, named Fasad or Fasaud, depending on... He was a Middle Eastern television signal. 
I mean, that's really what he was. He was a television signal. Go read the comics. It's like issues 307 to 310 of the Fantastic Four. Um, and he almost defeats the Fantastic... Of course he almost defeats the Fantastic Four. But they get away, uh, and, and the Thing and Sharon Ventura, Miss Marvel, she called herself at the time, uh, get away in a rocket ship. So they go up into low orbit, and as they're up in low orbit... Um, they get bombarded with cosmic rays. The cosmic rays are what turn the Fantastic Four into the Fantastic Four in the first place. Well, they crash land, and as they crash land, there's a great splash page, and it was it was written, the the pencils of the issue were done by Keith Pollard. There's a great splash page of the thing looking at himself, and he's completely mutated now. Instead of just being like a smooth rock on his hide, he's all bumpy and rocky, but he's so much bigger and stronger now. But the real kicker is, is Miss Marvel had been mutated into a thing as well. And they did a great job of making her look like the thing originally did because when he was first written, it was more of a dinosaur skin type hide rather than that rocky hide. Well, they go through a couple issues of her dealing with her change and everything. There's a fall of the mutants tie-in that brings in Doctor Doom. The Beast was going through some changes at this point where he was having some issues of losing control and everything, and sh and Sharon sees that. Sharon Ventura, Miss Marvel, sees that, and she decides she's okay. However, Ben is not convinced, and this is where it gets crazy, ladies and gentlemen. My favorite story ever told. Really, I, it's truly, truly, truly one of my favorite things storylines ever done because of just how universe spanning it is and how much fun it is. Okay, so in issue three thirteen. Uh, ben decides to take the guys down to Monster Island where the Mole Man lives. This is the Fantastic Four's first ever villain. And he's, you know why he's a villain? Because he's ugly. That was his reason for being a villain. He looked ugly, so he left the world because people didn't like his ugliness. He went to go be the Lord of the Monsters and live underground. I know, right? So... Anyhow, back in 296 of the Fantastic Four, the one I was telling you about, what was neat is the thing had basically done the same thing. He said, you know what, I can't, I don't have a life on the surface. So he went and befriended the Mole Man and, uh, and, and began to help him out. Well, come to find out, the Mole Man was going to destroy a lot of the Earth to raise Monster Island up to be its own continent. And if you've watched Superman Returns, you know what that means. Billions of people die. So, um... So, but the thing had struck up a friendship with, with the Mole Man. It was a tenuous thing at best. Well, the Fantastic Four thing, Human Torch, uh, the now she thing, if you will, that's what a lot of people take to call her. I don't like calling her that. And Crystal go to Mole Man's Monster Island. And issue 313 is, is what kicks us all off. It was written by Steve Englehart, as I said, but Sal Buscema was a guest artist on this, on this, particular, episode, on this particular issue. And um, the guys start out at Project Pegasus, all right? From Project Pegasus, they go to Monster Island, okay? From Mo while they're at, down in Monster Island, they find out that the, that the Mole Man's little subservient critters, the Moloids, were being overrun with the Lava Men and with Tyrannuses, uh, who was another villain who lived underground, with his, with his minions called the Subterraneans, and they go out, they help the Moloids, they go looking for the Mole Man, 
And as they find him, he's attacked by the lava men. And the lava men take him deeper down, and the Fantastic Four cannot save him. They, they, can't, they, they can't get to him in time to save him, but they do try. Well, in the middle of all of this, after it's all said and done, Sharon reveals she knew that the thing brought her there to try to get Mole Man to turn her back. Johnny's starting to have, because see, Johnny and Crystal, back in the day, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch and Crystal, had been an item. They were like boyfriend-girlfriend. They were uh, J.S. and C. forever. Um, but Johnny was now married to Alicia Masters. And so he's starting to have, you know, some issues with being off alone with her and, and the team. Sharon reveals she knew what Ben's plan was, but she let him do it anyway just because... You know, she thought it was time to go on an adventure and, and let him get it out of his system, but she likes being a thing, so she's accepted it. The next issue picks up right where we left off, down in the Mole Man's Lair on Monster Island, written by 314, Steve Englehart, and uh, Keith Pollard now back on pencils. And um, so they decide, the thing says, you know what, I used to live down here. It's really cool to go exploring. Let's go on an adventure together. So they go through, start going through some of the tunnels underneath Monster Island where the Mole Man lives and they find these teleportation points where they walk through them and they're immediately teleported somewhere else. Well, as they're walking along through these different teleports, um, they come to this huge city and the city is run by a guy named Belasco. Now, this is where it gets crazy. Belasco was an X-Men slash Kazar villain and a totally weird one. It's like the most obscure villain you could have picked out at this time. Steve Englehart was like, let's bring Belasco in. And he's under the world and he's a magic guy, so he, he does his magic. Um, and they barely escape Belasco. And as they're getting away from Belasco, they find another teleportation point and they end up at this city with all of these cat people. It's like they end up with the Thundercats. I know, it's crazy to me too. But check this out. These cat people had been seen before. They were in the West Coast Avengers. Uh, Tigra had had a run with them. And Thing had been with the West Coast Avengers during time, so he recognized them. Um, but they're evil, and they work for Belasco. So it's crazy. Well, as they're fighting, you even get a cameo appearance by Doctor Strange while he's fighting some huge eyeball with tentacles. And... <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't know if this ends up tying into the whole Inferno thing that would be about a year later or what um, but it's so cool because there's a whole page where you see Doctor Strange fighting for his soul and there's a little asterisk and it says in the war for Doc Strange's soul is witnessed more completely in Strange Tales number 14 now on sale so it's like there was crossover but it was not important crossover it was just neat to see well, Belasco starts attacking Doctor Strange, and the Fantastic Four use that point to get away. They jump into a river on a boat. They go through another teleportation point, and it ends there at the feet of this guy on a huge pass place. They're at the feet of this guy named Master Pandemonium. Not only that, but they've ended up on a whole different planet. You find out in, in Fantastic Four 315... They've gone to a completely different planet that one time Morbius went to. Now, for those of you who are Spider-Man fans, you know that Morbius is a human vampire. He turned himself into a vampire. He was one of Spider-Man's villains. At this point, he wasn't a vampire anymore, though. But come to find out, he'd been to this weird planet, Arcturus 4. 
that's inhabited by all these weird creatures, and you start to get into a history of time and space. Uh, Master Pandemonium is there. Now, Master Pandemonium is this guy. He looks like a Power Rangers villain. He really does. He's got, like, horn. He looks like something out of Voltron or 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 some old movie like that. It, it really does look very anime-esque. He's got... He's got a mask. He looks like Jushin Thunder Liger, if you're familiar with wrestling at all. Um, but basically, he'd been in a car wreck and lost his arm, and he sold his soul to Mephisto. He made a deal with Mephisto to get his arm back. Well, Mephisto did that, but he took his soul and scattered it into five pieces across reality. And what Master Pandemonium's doing is he's out looking for these pieces of his soul, and he fights people while he's doing it in his hands, like he shoots demons out of his arms. It's really weird. But he's on this planet they end up on. They're talking to him. They have a little fighty fighty with all these demons and stuff. They finally realize we gotta work together to get off this planet. They find these big trenches. The trenches are like runways for Comet Man. Who's Comet Man, you say? I don't have a clue, but he was someone who had a mini-series around this time in Marvel, and it's just crazy. They're on a freaking other planet. Marvel guy or Captain Comet or Mr. Comet or Comet Man shows up with his buddy Max, who's like the Junkions from the Transformers movie. He's talking TV and everything. Comet Man doesn't want to take Max back to Earth because that makes Max crazier than he already is. He's already loony. And he just looks at him and says, ah, oh, nonsense. He doesn't need to be such a fuddy-duddy. Max kicks a rock, and they're transported back to Earth. They end up in Antarctica. Are you with me? We start in the caves of the Mole Man. We end up on a different planet, and now we're back in Antarctica. Three issues. Issue 316 is a very exposition-heavy issue. My friend Robin from the Media Junkyard would love it because what happens is is they get everybody together that has been a part of this stuff, all the stuff they've heard about, whether it's Comet Man, Belasco, the Cat People, all this stuff. They get them together down here in the Antarctic because in the Antarctic, there used to be a place called the Savage Land, which was uh, a Jurassic Park kind of place that was tropical even though it was at the South Pole. And without the um, without Jeff Goldblum, and what happened? What happens is is they get Kazar, who is like Marvel's Tarzan. They get him and his wife together with Comet Man and Max and the Thing, and they're all sharing information. Meanwhile, Crystal and Sharon Ventura, Miss Marvel, and Johnny Storm, the Human Torch are keeping watch outside, and they're attacked by a bunch of icemen. And all these icemen are attacking them, and they're fighting them back, and they see where they're coming from. They're coming from this machine that is run and built by Advanced Idea Mechanics, also known as AIM, not to be confused with the toothpaste. Now, for those of you who don't know, AIM is like this industrial espionage group. They're like a super science group of people that wear these yellow jumpsuits with, like, buckets on their head. It's AIM. It's great. And and they show it from time to time whenever science is involved. And I know. It's crazy. I know. Well, come to find out, here's what's going on. We get into a whole thing about how the Earth was created, why they put, and how this, this race that put Earth together, basically when Earth started to fall apart and poles started to drift south and everything, 
it's very evolution heavy and whether you're into that or not the point is it's a great story um they put these giant heaters under there and that's how the savage land stayed all tropical even though it was in the middle of the antarctic antarctic um they go on to talk about what was done and how these little heaters were built and everything and how then you get into the war between the Eternals and the Deviants. I mean, everything is mentioned. Like, all of Marvel's most obscure history and characters are mentioned. Celestials, the story of Atlantis is brought to bear. Uh, they get into how things end up on Arcturus Four, all this other stuff, and they decide, well, let's go find this heater and find out what is going on, what all these things are. There's no villain there's no enemy. There's no, they're just on an exploration. It's what the Fantastic Four does. They're exploring the freaking universe. So 316, you go through all this talky-talky, a little bit of ice fighty-fighty, and at the end, they start to cut open this big heater. They, get, they, they burrow down in the ice to the heater, and they begin to cut it open to try to get inside, and as they open it up, the final splash page, and it says, uh, what I love is the cover shows them all standing over this thing, looking fearful. And on the front splash page of issue 316, it says, Warning, in this incredible issue, you'll find the one word you'd never thought you'd see in a Marvel comic again. And when they pull this thing back, there's one word plastered on the heater, and it says, Beyonder. Now, by heater, it's like a big generator thing with all kinds of gizmics and gimmos, and we're about to get into some of that stuff in a second. And the thing, his last words are, no, not again, you know, because the Beyonder having to put up with him is kind of sucky. You get to issue 317, and there's some thing-on-thing loving going on because Sherry and, and Sherry, that's what they all call her, Sherry, and I feel like I should call her Sherry because I really enjoy this story. I'm talking too fast. I'm going, it's so big. Do you see the scope of this story? 317, what happens is, is they end up going back to space. They go to talk to these people to find out, are we talking about the Beyonder that we know from the Secret Wars? Or are we talking about this race of people called the Beyonders who basically help create the universe? Well, while they're there, you find out AIM has tried to sabotage the whole thing because they're wanting to keep all this knowledge to themselves because what they're trying to do is create another cosmic cube. Cosmic Cube. So they've teleported back to another planet. They're, oh my gosh, it's just so nuts. Then we get a break because we have annual number 21. And it's continuing annual 21. And all that really happens in Fantastic Four annual 21 is um, Crystal leaves the team. Crystal had been married to Quicksilver. There was some issues there. She did not love Quicksilver anymore because he had been bad. But the Inhumans on the moon, that's where they live, in the blue area of the moon where there's some air, uh, really serious about her staying because it's they're, they're such a closed society, the Inhumans. So Black Bolt, whose power is, all the Inhumans have powers, Black Bolt, if he speaks, it levels buildings. He takes her out to where there's hardly any air, hardly any atmosphere on the moon, and he whispers, stay. And it completely blows her off her feet. And, uh, and and it just, that moment convinced Crystal, you know, I've got, if he if he's this serious that he would speak, I've got to say, because Black Bolt never speaks. So that's what basically issue 21 was to do. Issue 21 was part of uh, the evolutionary war crossover that took place through the annuals that year. And, um, and, and it 
involve the high evolutionary and stuff, it'd be interesting to talk about at some point if it weren't so boring. I'm sorry, that was a little too negative. It would be interesting to talk about at some point if I had all the, the tie-ins for it or whatever. Well, we're back to issue 318, the Fantastic Four, now the Fantastic Three. It's Thing, She-Thing, and the Human Torch. They're blown away by all that they've learned. But while in issue 317, while they're on this other planet, the Thing saw something, this little contraption that these people had that he recognized, and he couldn't figure out what it did until he stuck a little lever in it and was kind of playing with it, and it kind of gave an explosion off. And he recognized it then. He's like, this is a, a small version of what Reed built back in our lab, the Radical Cube. What the Radical Cube does is it opens the portal into... The Negative Zone! The Negative Zone is an antimatter universe that Reed Richards discovered and the Fantastic Four have spent a lot of time in. In fact, I think the Negative Zone was most recently used uh, as a place to have a prison for people during the Civil War, for the people who refused to register their superpowers. So 318 is all about the Fantastic Four going to into the Negative Zone or the Fantastic Three. However, this is where it gets serious. Enter Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom shows up at Alicia Masters' house, which should scare us because Alicia is blind and we are scared. But not before he has just randomly uh, attacked a man on the streets of New York, supposedly leaving him left for dead. We would find out that the man's name is Owen Reese, a.k.a. the Molecule Man. The Molecule Man is a being, a character who was endowed with the power to basically do whatever he thought. Um, he can alter mass to his liking. So he really, there's no limit to his power. And Dr. Doom wanted him out of the way for some reason. Dr. Doom goes to kill him. And this brings in his girlfriend, who was, uh, I can't remember her name. Um, but Dr. Doom had given her, like, lava powers back during the first Secret Wars. And so, but they decided they hit it off. And, and the Molecule Man had fought the Fantastic Four before. He was a bad dude. He wasn't very nice. But then he started to turn over a new leaf on life. And, um, and tried to make things, uh, make things better for himself and be a good guy. Well, uh, when Dr. Doom attacks him, it reignites his molecule. He'd lost his, his power. Um, and, uh, or I don't think he'd lost his power, but he just, he'd kind of suppressed it. And when Dr. Doom attacked him, it activated it again, and he began to have his powers and stuff. So, um... There we are, 318. They all go to the Phantom Zone. Well, Dr. Doom goes first. He kind of, they, they don't trust Dr. Doom. He shows up with Alicia. He's like, you've got to go with me to the Phantom Zone. This is huge. This is bigger than anything you could imagine. And they're like, no way. We're not going with you the Phantom Zone. Fighty, fighty, fighty. Dr. Doom throws this little thing at him that puts him, that phases him out of time by two seconds. So he's able to go through the Radical Cube and get into the Phantom Zone first because in the Phantom Zone, you can serve. I'm in the Phantom Zone. In the Negative Zone, you can survive in space, but don't touch anything because it's all antimatter there. And if matter touches antimatter, there's a huge explosion. Well, Doctor Doom uh, is there. They meet up. The Fantastic Three get in a ship. They chase after him. 
while they're in the negative zone, they meet up with the negative zone villain Blastar, and they have a fight with Blastar, and as they're about to be destroyed by Blastar, Doctor Doom comes in and saves them. They take Blastar's ship and continue on through the negative zone. Then we get to 319. 319, once again, Steve Englehart, Keith Pollard. Uh, Steve Englehart on, on uh, story, Keith Pollard on the pencils. Um, and <laughs> it's called Secret Wars 3. You want to know why? Because they press on to the crossroads of infinity. They go to the very end of the negative zone. I don't know how they got there. They just did in their little ship. They go to the very ends of the negative zone, and they begin to go through all these different places. They fly into a lightless universe. They go into one that looks like it's full of all these celestials. They go into one that looks like they're in all kinds of cosmic cubes. Then they shift again, and they see Reed Richards and Sue Storm on a ship, on another ship, with um, the Silver Surfer. And look, uh, this is one of those things I loved about comics in the 80s. Uh, Dr. Doom says, we, and everyone's yelling. You know they're yelling because the word bubbles are not perfectly round. They're jagged-edged. <coughs> so let me, here's the panel. I'll read, let me read the panel. I'll try to act. <clears throat> the, the, the realities are shifting. The thing says, shifting, what, the blue blazes? And then, and then you see the, the surfer says, what? And Reed, uh, Sue Richards says, Johnny, Ben. And Reed Richards says, Dr. Doom appearing for a single instance. And then the thing says, Reed and Sue and the surfer. Then they're fading already. And then Miss Marvel says, they look like they're in trouble. And the thing says, get them back. And Johnny says, right now, that's my sister. And Doom says, silence. We are at the climax of our quest. It matters not at all what goal those three pursue. And they're all yelling it. And um, because you know that because it's jagged edged, not round edged. And then there's a little asterisk that says, but if you disagree, it's all in Silver Surfer number 16. <laughs> I love this because what it did is not only connect the comics, but it lets you know um, where you needed to go. If you, if you were interested in something, you knew where to find it. If there was something they mentioned that happened years ago, you could go dig up that back issue, that sort of thing. Well, they end up in a universe that looks just like ours. In fact, Johnny yells. You know he's yelling because it's jagged around the edges, not smooth with the word bubbles. And he says, this is where we left. This is our place. Well, Doom stands up. He just ignores him. And he says, you know, Beyonder, can you hear me? And all of a sudden in the sun, you see the face of the Beyonder from the Secret Wars, from the Secret Wars 2. And he is ticked. And basically what you find out is Doom knew this. But the Doom's thing is there's a whole mess of things where you get into the timeline. Where See, Doom had died before the Secret Wars, but the Beyonder plucked him out of time uh, to be in a Secret Wars. There was a mind transfer thing. It gets crazy, guys, but it's the Fantastic Four, and I love every minute of it. Because here's the thing. Ultimately, Doom's goal was to get his memory back, but, when he got his, but in tricking the Beyonder to, in giving him his memory back, um, of all the moments that he missed, he basically tricked the Beyonder in letting him remember how he stole the Beyonder's power in the Secret Wars. So it's all a power play for Doom, and understand that that's what it always is. That's why the that's one of the things that the Fantastic Four, the Rise of the Silver Surfer, got completely right, is that for Doom, it's all about the power. And now his motives for having the power, whether it be to get his mother out of hell whether it be to rule the world, whatever the case may be, it's always all about the power. 
Well, these two cosmic beings show up, Cubic and the Shaper of the Worlds. And, and they begin to fight. Now, one of the great things about the fights that are going on in this thing, and once they get in the negative zone especially, and, and all these cosmic beings, uh, Keith Pollard does a great job. He doesn't ape Kirby. And what, what I mean by ape is he doesn't trace or, or completely copy. He does a great job of paying homage to Jack Kirby with all the different Kirby energy lines and everything, the way Jack Kirby would do them back in the day. And for those of you who are comic fans, you know what I'm talking about with like the circles and the and that sort of thing. Well, the Beyonder begins to fight these two cosmic beings, Cubic and the Shape of the World, and they they tussle. And while they're fighting, um, Doom and the Fantastic Four face off. They have a problem, but then boom, Volcana—that's her name—and the Molecule Man show up. And they show up to go after Doom and, um, and, and, and try to, you know, set things right. And in the midst of this, and, and Molecule Man throws himself in the middle of this cosmic battle between these cosmic beings and the Beyonder. And come to find out, the reason Doom wanted to kill him was because he knew that the Molecule Man would see through what Doom's plan was. Well, as they're all talking, and as they're all going through all this stuff, the Thing gets all the answers from all the questions they'd gotten from one of these cosmic beings, uh, the shape of the worlds. Um, as they're talking, they begin to talk about a cosmic cube and how a cosmic cube is made. And come to find out, what happened is, is Owen Reese was caught in in a, a tear in reality that should have created a cosmic cube and the Beyonder and he are supposed to be the result of a cosmic cube. So he and the Beyonder work together to form a cosmic cube. And, um, and that's the end. And Doom gets to the cube and he gets his, um, gets his wish to get his memory back. And uh, they're all transported back to the Fantastic Four, to Four Freedoms Plaza. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's, and it ends great. It's a great, here's the thing. I just totally bored you all with my description of the story of Fantastic Four 313 to 319, a.k.a. Secret Wars 3. This is what I love about it. Number one, it had to be that I was a kid when I was picking it up. But even as an adult reading these things, I'm blown away by how we started in the tunnels of the Mole Man. We started underneath the Earth, and we end up in a completely other universe run by this guy who the last time we saw him, he was leaving this universe for his own universe at the end of Secret Wars 2. And along the way, there are so many obscure and cosmic and weird characters that are all combined into this thing. It's good storytelling. I don't know if it's available in trade anywhere. I, the issues are cheap, 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 cheap. You can get them super cheap. It's just one of those things that as a kid I absolutely loved because I came in after these had been printed. So I had to go back and kind of find these as back issues. And that was, that was cool. And the way I found out about them is I had issue 315 somehow. Um, I don't know if I'd picked it up from a friend or, or what had happened, but I had issue 315, the one with Master Pandemonium. And, um, <clears throat> and that was, 
I didn't have anything else. I, at some point, I might have grabbed 318. I know that it took me the longest to find Fantastic Four 319. Um, and now I'm missing 317, 318. I don't know what's happened to my comic collection over the years. I'm, rum, I'm rambling, though. Um, but it was just, it was that thing of, of, I've got to find these to know what this story is all about, to really fully understand the story. And quite honestly, I read the story before I read Secret Wars. I read the story before I read Secret Wars 2. I, I had no clue. You know, when they talked about all these heroes getting taken to another world, I'm like, that's really cool. I didn't get to read Secret Wars until my cousin, who was dating a guy who collected comic books at the time, he had he had the full run, and he let me borrow it and read it. And I'm telling you, as a kid, and I'm talking 11, 12-year-old kid reading the Secret Wars, I loved it. And to this day, I love it. To this day, I love what these, what these guys did because of the sense of adventure. Now, here's the thing. If you're not a Fantastic Four fan, you're not a Fantastic Four fan. I don't know that there's any, any middle of the road when it comes to Fantastic Four. You either like them or they're just not your cup of tea. I've always enjoyed the Fantastic Four. I enjoy the family dynamic. I enjoy the, uni- the, the adventuring dynamic of them because ultimately that's what they do. The, the Fantastic Four are not crime fighters. They save the Earth. But they're really not crime fighters. You see, you know, when they can help out, they do. And it's not that they turn a, they don't turn their a blind eye to crime. But ultimately, what they do is they use their powers. Reed Richard uses amazing intellect and his powers for the benefit of humanity through his research and his study and stuff. Um, and that's what they do. And they save the Earth. They save the Earth from Galactus. They save the Earth from Doctor Doom. They save the Earth from all kinds of threats. And that's just, and what this story is, what was neat about this story is it's not a we're saving the earth story. It's a we're discovering something story. And in the long run, they end up saving the universe in a way. And it's just so cool to see them do that without Reed Richards figuring everything out. Um, Because that's what he would always do. There is some hokey dialogue, uh, especially between the thing and Miss Marvel there's a little bit of over-explanation sometimes of how powers are used and that sort of thing, but that's to be expected from a comic book in 1987. Um, this story flowed right into a battle between the Thing with his new Thing powers and the Hulk, uh, who was gray at the time. And it's one of my favorite Hulk-Thing fights of all time. It, it goes from Fantastic Four 320 and, and spills over into Hulk 350. And... Um, and actually, at the end of 350, the Beast shows up and recruits Hulk to go help out the Avengers in what would be the final chapter of the Evolutionary War crossover in Avengers Annual number 12 or number 7, something like that. Um, I, I don't... I, I, my thing is, is I don't want to recommend this story to you. It's as much as I want to recommend it to you, I don't want you to... I don't harbor... I don't think people like what I like. And so I don't think that as you read this, this series that you're going to get the same love and enjoyment out of it as I did. What you may really enjoy is when Reed and Sue come back to the Fantastic Four around issue 326. And from issue 326 to about issue 332, 333, see they were writing for the trades even back then. There's a whole story arc with a rogue watcher. And not only do we get to see a, 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 a doppelganger Fantastic Four, we get to see the dreams of the Fantastic Four. 
and and what's going on in their minds and hearts as they sleep and dream because they're they're put into uh, a stasis by this rogue watcher who wants to watch who wants to take more action than what his race would would originally let him um Fantastic Four, number 313 to 319. If you can find it and you want a read that is just, it's ridiculous in its scope. It's ridiculous in the leaps that it makes from place to place, but it is so much fun. And unlike a lot of people, I enjoy the mutated thing. I liked him in his big rocky form with the big rocky hide that he had. I really always enjoyed that. Um, Check it out. And if you can tack on uh, uh, Fantastic Four 320 and Hulk 350, do that. If you're not a Fantastic Four fan, you may like this because of the different dynamic, because Reed and Sue aren't there, and you've got a really a different kind of team. Involved in this, you know, nowadays what's happening in comics is a lot of writers like to take some of these more obscure characters, some of these C-list and D-list characters, and bring them to the forefront. And if you kind of dig on that idea of what they're doing, you may like this this series for that reason. It's just one of those things that as a kid, as a comic book fan, I completely, totally geeked out about. Uh, Steve Englehart had a pretty good run on the Fantastic Four. There was some hit and miss stuff. Uh, by and large, uh, he doesn't like the stuff, apparently, when Reed and Sue come back. He was forced to make Reed and Sue come back. And from what I read on one of his blogs, he doesn't, I don't want to say he doesn't like it, but he apparently doesn't feel like it has the same oomph as this stuff without Reed and Sue did. I disagree. Um, it, that was some of my favorite Fantastic Four ever. And it, and that was when it was getting right. It was, and on the heels of this stuff came Walt Simonson and the stuff he did with the Fantastic Four. So it's it, this is one of those things that I'd really like to just jump into at some point and really bore you with my Marvel zombieism from around this time because that's when I could really get it. We, I could do a whole show on the Fantastic Four, and I may do that at some point. Um, but that's after I refill your request of Lost and Twilight Zone and all this other great stuff. So uh, I'm going to wrap it up, though. My throat's drying out. My voice is getting cracky, and um, I'm getting hungry. However, in the words of the great Kermit the Frog, but before we go, um, a couple of months back on a little podcast you may have heard of, especially considering my the early days and my attempt, well, I guess they were that early, considering last year and my attempt to get on the show, um, the Forcecast ran a contest uh, based around the relationship that we learned that Obi-Wan had with the Duchess of Mandalore, one Satine. Now, uh, you know, regardless of your thoughts on on what was done in the Clone Wars with that, it was a funny thing. Someone wrote into their show and said, hey, I can't get Bruce Hornsby's Mandolin Rain out of my mind, and I keep thinking Mandalore Rain. So they put a challenge out to people to write lyrics, sing a song, that sort of thing. And I want to say a special thanks to Jimmy Mack from the Forcecast because uh, he helped me get hooked up with the karaoke track to this song. I've never re- I'd never really heard it. Um... Um, I mean, you know, what I know of Bruce Hornsby is sitting in line, need a dime, waiting for some food that's fine. And for fun, I say get a job. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, that's all I know. And and, I, and those words were totally slaughtered there. Um, but uh, but so this song, you know, and I said I can do that. You know, I've been known to write a parody or two in my day. 
And so um, I wrote a song, performed it, you know, it, production quality was, I'm sure, crap or whatever, but uh, they played it and seemed to get a kick out of it, and I got a kick out of being played on the Forcecast, and, and just publicly let me say thank you so much to the Forcecast. I've been on twice for some Clone Wars roundtables and just absolutely have a blast. I always feel like when I go on, I really try to pull my personality back because I have such a thing of, well, I've got to be on here. I've got to get attention. And, and, and so there's so many comments here and there that I always want to make, and I just kind of wait my turn a lot of times. And, and then by about midway through, I'm like, ah, oh, screw it. And I just start being silly. And, um, and, I, and, and I'm always, I was surprised the first time they asked me back, and, and I was really surprised that Jimmy Mack got in touch and had some kind words to say. So, um, so yeah, hey, white junk drawer cousin to the Force Cast. That's what we are here at Geek Out Loud. But um, uh, I won second place. I got second place. And it was really cool because they had James Arnold Taylor, who is the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, among other voices on the Clone Wars, including Plo Koon, and they had him on for their big, I guess you could call it a season finale of the Force Cast. And, um, and he announced the winners. And he announced second place in the voice of Plo Koon. And because he was on a phone, it really sounded like uh, Plo Koon was actually saying my name. And so, you know, you want to talk about, look, there have been some huge moments in my life um, as far as my geekdom goes. Uh, being on a video on StarWars.com is number one, and this is like right up there with it because it was just so cool, you know, because there's someone out there who's closely associated with Star Wars who, if he hears Big Honk and Steve, he might not know where he's heard that from, but he knows he's heard it. But uh, but I want to play that clip for you. They, uh, they've given me permission to, to play the clip of uh, my second place um, winning being announced, so we'll play that for you right now. Lokun will announce number two. 38% of the... I, I feel like Ryan Seacrest on American Idol. Uh, Big Honkin' Steve. Big Honkin'. That's something Plokun has never said, by the way. Big Honkin' Steve. And I will probably get a call from Lucas now after that. Don't ever say Big I like to think that the galaxy not- far, far away is big enough for Big Honkin'. I like to think that. (laughs) That's great. So there you have it. Big Big Honkin' Steve is announced by Plo Koon. You know, I will say this, that if somehow, uh, and it would be Ahsoka who would end up saying it, that's a big honkin' ship, Master. Um, If the word honkin' ever got put into an episode of The Clone Wars, you just might as well expect never to hear an episode of Geek Out Loud, The Big Honkin' Show, never hear me on Starkville's House of L, never hear me on Round 3 again because I will have a heart attack and die. Um, but th- that's one of those things that would, you know, that would never happen. I did, when I found out the winnings, there was some, okay, straight up serious business. There was a little bit of confusion on my part as to when the voting began and when it ended. Um, and the guys who won, who are a talented group of people, High Adventure, um, they... Um, you know, they had their, their people, their fans and their listeners and, and people that knew them really promoting them and, and trying to get the votes in. And so when I saw that I'd kind of fallen behind in the voting, I went to go get people to, to vote as well, and the voting had ended. And I did not realize that the voting had ended, and um, 
And so, so I fell behind uh, kind of in the, uh, I guess, in not quite the 11th hour, maybe about the 9th hour. Um, but uh, on Twitter, I then went on Twitter when I found out that I had not won, and I made a joke, uh, obviously in poor taste, about the contest being rigged. I did not, the contest was not rigged. I did not think, I did not honestly think it was rigged. Um, the voting was as honest as it could be. I know that. And, um, and, and so I just want everyone to know that I was joking around, that, that it, that was my way. I'm a sore loser and that was my way of joking around and, and kind of dealing with it. And, you know, um, but those guys at the forest cast are great. And, and the guys who won, super talented, and they deserve all kinds of recognition and, and all kinds of, of, of shout-outs and plugs. It's High Adventure. Um, I, I should know. I should have done my homework to tell you where you can find them. I can tell you you can listen to them, some of their work, some of their songs they've written on uh, the Forcecast. I, I, I want to say they've been on some of the Galaxy of Music uh, episodes that Jimmy Mac's done over there. So um, uh, get in touch with those guys and let them know that, that congratulations and and they are they're worth they're worth checking out and giving a listen to. I mean, hey, they're Star Wars fans. You can't beat that. So, um, but it was a fun. It was it was it was a good time doing the song. I had a good time writing it. Uh, you know me. I don't know really how to do much of anything super seriously. So I did try to make it kind of a funny bit about the things that had gone on. And it spans the song spans a whole galaxy and. Uh, we'll probably close up with that today. But I just wanted to say, uh, once again, thanks to Jason, thanks to Jimmy Mack and, and those guys at the Forcecast. They do a great job. I mean, they really, truly, truly do. And, um, and it was just neat to be able to be a part of uh, what they have going on. So with that, it's going to wrap it up. And, uh, and and you need to know about a couple of places that you can uh, you can find us on on the Geek Out Loud. We've got a Facebook page now. It's Facebook dot com forward slash geek out loud facebook.com forward slash geek out loud the forums are gone um it was just it was getting ridiculous with the spam it was getting ridiculous with the work involved and 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 no one no one should have to volunteer their time to keep spam cleaned out of a form at that extent and um and so i would not expect anyone to go do that, whether they said they'd be mods or not. So it wasn't a lack of mod thing. It wasn't a lack of moderators. So don't don't think that. It was just a thing where there were only a few sections that were getting used, and those guys have been able to take and do something different uh, with their people that were using the forums. And a lot of people weren't using them. But what I've found is what's really easy to use are these Facebook uh, fan pages. And I hate that it's a fan page, but at least you don't have to fan us. You can like us. That's what you do. You like us or you know us, that kind of thing. Um, at facebook.com forward slash geek out loud. Now we own, we have under 200 people on that right now. And I know there are a lot of you that use the face and it's a great way to connect with other geeks and put some links up there that people might not be aware of There are discussion threads. There's going to be a few polls, that sort of thing. So head on over, become a fan, become a part of the Geek Out Loud uh, Facebook page so that we can have a community where we can interact. It's free. It's, you don't have to, there's no danger in uh, the spam type stuff and that sort of thing there. Geek out, uh, Facebook.com forward slash uh, Geek Out Loud, and, and you can go there. Also, I would love for you to check out Big Hon- the Big Honkin' Show. If you're not listening to the Big Honkin' Show, here's the thing. 
It's not a geeky show, and that might turn some of you off. That might be why some of you don't listen. But we have a blast on the Big Honkin' Show. You can check that out at BigHonkinShow.com. Coming up over at Starkville's House of L, our 150th episode will be coming up if it hadn't already, if it's not already out. Um, and hopefully we've got some big surprises for you there and some good times as we talk about the season finale of Smallville. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to, once again, Scott Gardner, who emailed in. Two true freaks. If you enjoy comics, if you enjoy Star Trek, if you enjoy Star Wars, uh, check out their podcast. It's good stuff. Uh, of course, our good friend Michael Bailey at Views from the Long Box. This was kind of a Bailey-inspired episode, and I wish I would have had someone to kind of have a conversation with about this. I don't know anyone that's in the Fantastic Four from this time, though. So it is what it is, and, um, and it is Geek Out Loud. That's what we do here. So as we push forward to a 50th anniversary, which will be happening in, uh, let's see, June, July, August. Let's see, 47 will be June, 48 July, 49 August, 50 in September. 50 is going to con- uh, consist of my Star Wars Celebration 5 uh, recap. Hopefully we'll do some stuff from Celebration 5. You never know. Um, but um, but we've got a 50th anniversary coming up in a few months. So uh, what should we do for it? You let me know. And uh, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it then. Hey, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Would love to hear from you. Geekoutonline at gmail.com. Geekoutonline at gmail.com. Don't forget that blog is geekoutonline.com. Would love to hear from you over there in the comment section under things that people post. Let's get some discussions going. And uh, it's summertime. That means it's movie time. So be watching for different movie reviews, that sort of thing. Until next time, I'm Big Honkin' Steve. Thanks for geeking out with me. Ah, yeah. Big Honkin' Steve here. White junk drawer cousin to the Force cast. Talking about that Mandalore rain, R-E-I-G-N. It's the tragic story of Obi-Wan Kenobi and his unrequited love. Or is it requited love? I don't know. I don't know what either of those things mean. Just listen. You'll get the whole story. Yeah. Our time came and went with the time that we spent Hiding out from assassins with Qui-Gon Jinn She laughed and I'd smile It would last for a while We'd get away, then we'd have to do it all again Then came her Mandalorian Sixteen became such a big pain Ah, pacifism in my face Just wait till I tell Mace Listen to Anakin Hey, what does that kid know? He makes my eyes roll This job's gonna really blow A beard full of sand Listening to the cantina band Hanging out with Luke and Chewie And some guy named Han Again I find it's time To keep the galaxy out of harm But there's moments that I find I'm not feeling so strong That stupid Mandalorian Satan became such a pain Ah, pacifism in your face Thanks to her, I'm in this place. Listen to Anakin. 
he thinks that I don't know. His voice got really low. Now his breathing's oh so slow. Cut down by the Sith Lord. Now I'm stuck as a ghost forevermore. Should have stayed on Mandalore. I wouldn't have ended up this way. Messed up there, didn't I? Oh, this way. That's right, Obi-Wan got cut down because he chose duty over love. <laughs> I said duty. <laughs> oh, duty. Obi-Wan, unrequited love. Yoda's in his den I show up and startle him But I still think about her When Greenie's asleep I can't change my mind Oh, I knew all the time that she'd go But that's a choice I made long ago When she chose her Mandalorian Oh, Satine became such a pain Pacifism all over the place And I got laughed at by Mace And then there's Anakin Well, what do you know? His ghost really did show How's he so young though? How's he so young though? Tangible. I'll never hug her again. That's what everyone thinks when he looks at his sparkly hand. All because he chose duty over love. <laughs> Why can't you laugh? Why can't you help but laugh when you say duty? His ghost really did show. How's he so young though? Just watch my eyes roll. Eternity may really blow because of a Mandalorian. That stupid Mandalorian. Honking out. This song is really long at the end, isn't it? <clears throat> See you, ladies. <laughs> <laughs>